Acts 17, 1 through 15. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Alapania, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on the third Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, but not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out of the crowd. (coughs) And when they could not find him, they dragged Jason and some of his brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men have turned the world upside down, have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word of God with all eagerness examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command from Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Father, these are your words to us today. And I pray that your spirit, Lord, would lead us and shape us and mold us. Help us, Lord, to see you. And pray that, Lord, what you do in our hearts today will be that of kingdom and of you. And we pray these things in your precious name. Amen. Please be seated. (coughs) Well, in the midst of heaven going through another Christmas season, It is once again abundantly clear that those of us who live in North America are living a pretty good, comfortable life. When we consider all the gift-giving over these past few weeks, it's clear that most of us have far and away more material possessions than the majority of the world's population. And by that same standard, we live in some pretty spacious homes and apartments. Most of us have a car, at least one, one car per family, sometimes more. 
We have cell phones, we have computers, we have iPads and smart TVs, and a plethora of technological gadgets that make our lives comfortable. If we need something, we go to the store, uh, stocked with multiple choices of whatever we want, and we buy it. Our grocery stores contain an overflow of countless varieties of food and drink. Living in such a world, it's pretty easy to fall into a comfortable, convenience style of Christianity. Like our grocery stores, many Christians do shop around, seeking churches that offer services that make them feel good. And so they attend if they're not too tired or it fits into their busy schedule. A few years back, there was a cartoon in a Christian magazine that poked fun at the way churches play, downplay now commitment in order to attract uh, attenders to the church. The cartoon was a billboard in front of a church that read, Come to join the Light Church. Light is L-I-T-E. 24% fewer commitments, the home of the 7.5% tithe, 15-minute sermons, 45-minute worship services, and only eight commandments. You make the choice. Everything you want in a church and less. We might chuckle a little about that story, that uh, cartoon, yet pollster George Gallup contends that fewer than 10% of evangelical Christians could be hardly considered to be committed. His surveys reveal that the majority of those who profess Christianity don't know the basic teachings of the Bible, and they don't live their lives any differently because of their faith. In Mark 8, Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. The life of the Apostle Paul gives us a great example of that those words from Jesus. In our previous text, which was at the end of November, I think, Acts 16, we, uh, we see that Paul and Silas had been arrested and publicly beaten in Philippi. And so Paul and Silas leave Philippi and travel to Thessalonica, where they boldly proclaim the gospel in the face of opposition. That's our text for today. The greatest opposition they had here was that the angry mob accused them of upsetting the world and promoting a king that was not Caesar. These men who who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Now in one sense, those charges, those accusations were exaggerated and false in that Paul's accusers were the ones who were upsetting the world and turning things around by stirring up mob violence. And Paul exhorts us all the way through Scripture that we are to live quiet lives, godly lives with dignity and and, uh, making respect towards governing authorities. Uh, But in another sense, both of those charges are true, or actually they ought to be true. Because as Christians, we should be upsetting the world. 
Amen? We should be turning the world upside down by confronting the world with the gospel. And Christians do proclaim there is a bigger king than Caesar, and that's Jesus. But in order to truly upset the world for Jesus, we need men and women of God who are truly committed to Jesus Christ, who are truly committed to share and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is in our mission statement at Aerosmith. We passionately proclaim the glory of God in Christ for the joy of all people. That's our battle cry. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here. Brothers and sisters, the world needs to be turned upside down. Ever since the fall of the human race into sin, people have been in rebellion against their creator. Uh, We are born into sin. We continue to sin unless we are upset by the gospel that confronts our sin. In sin, we have lost our heart for God. In sin, we we have lost our love for God. Uh, Our passions, our appetites, our desires are now for things of our own creation rather than from our creator. Sin has made the world stand up on its head and only Jesus Christ can turn it upside down, which means it's right side up at that point. We live in a world that has brazenly cast off God. We have cast him off as creator, insisting that science proves that we all evolved from some pond slime through sheer sheer chance over billions of years. If God is not the creator, he does not need to be obeyed. If humanity is the product of millions of years of chance, we need not fear judgment or eternity because God doesn't exist. And so we can determine for ourselves what is right and wrong. And today there is no absolute moral truth binding on everyone. The only absolute truth we have is that there is no absolute truth. Stick that in your pocket. And so now... It's perfectly, perfectly legal to kill a perfectly healthy baby in the womb right up almost to the moment of birth. In the same sense, we spare unrepentant murderers just for a few years in jail. It's also the law of the land that physicians who are trained to save lives are now required to give assistance to people who want to put themselves to death. And we now all face the reality that the world has passed numerous laws against God, giving us the right before God to decide what gender we want to be, regardless of how God has created us. But Genesis 1.27 says, God created us in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. A world that is so arrogantly self-centered and self-righteous and complacent in its brazen sin and in rebellion against God and against rejection of God needs to be turned upside down. All of this needs to be turned upside down. Paul writes of this in Romans 1, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. 
for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts have been darkened. The Bible tells us, and human history tells us, that God uses men and women who are passionately love God, who are passionately committed to Jesus Christ, who are truly committed to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to upset the world. The Apostle Paul was a man committed to stamping out Christianity as a false cult until he was confronted with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And after that, he was totally and fully committed to Jesus, proclaiming the gospel of grace that transformed his life. Christianity is not a commitment to a religion, but rather to a love relationship with the person of the crucified and risen Jesus Christ. From Philippians 3, Paul writes, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Jesus Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Because Paul truly knew Jesus, because he was truly committed to Jesus, he got beat up in Philippi. And rather than take a break or feel sorry for himself, he traveled the 100 miles to Thessalonica and he went into a synagogue and began proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah. And when he was forced to leave Thessalonica, he moved on to Berea and did the same thing. Paul was unstoppable in his commitment to share the gospel to the lost people in our lost world. Uh, Many today have a false idea that there are two optional tracks in the Christian life. The one track is the committed discipleship track. That's track for obsessive type people who are fanatical in their bend, who give up the comforts of life and they live without gadgets and toys like the rest of us enjoy. They give large portions of their income to the cause of Christ. They sacrificially devote themselves and their time to Jesus. But if that track is a bit too much for you, you can choose to step on that comfortable track of the convenience style of Christianity. In this, Jesus and the church are just a nice slice of part of my life that makes my feelings a little bit more pleasant. For them, Jesus is at the perimeter, not the center of what they do. These folks wouldn't think of being inconvenienced at all for the sake of the gospel. But guess what? Jesus never offered that track in the Bible to any of his followers. 
We are all not gifted to preach the gospel the same way Paul did. And we're not called, all of us, to serve as missionaries in foreign lands. But if you are a born-again Christian, you are called to be fully committed to Jesus Christ. Amen? In Matthew 6.33, Jesus commanded us all, not just missionaries and pastors, to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. In Revelation 3, Jesus warns us about the church in Laodicea, which he said he was going to vomit out of his mouth because they were so lukewarm in their commitment to him. The bride of Christ is a prominent symbol and metaphor used in the Bible to describe God's relationship uh, with his beloved bride, the church. Portrayed as the bridegroom in this relationship, God reveals himself to be faithful, loving, and committed to union with his church. Comprised of all those who believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, accepting the grace and and the gift of salvation. Now, consider the reflection of that truth in our own lives as husbands and wives when it comes to commitment and faithfulness. What is the expectation for us in a marriage between husbands and wife when it comes to commitment and faithfulness to one another? 75% of the time? 95% of the time? 99.9% of the time? Scripture says 100% on both sides. It's the same truth that when we're committing ourselves to Jesus Christ, to his church, to living for him, he wants everything, not just parts of us or even most of us. We read this here in uh, Ephesians, this picture. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself Savior. Now the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. But husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying, Paul says, that this refers to Christ and to the church. God does not call us to be nominal in our commitment and faithfulness to him in our relationships in marriage and relationships with the church which is the body of Christ, the physical presence of Jesus on earth. And the book of Acts reveals to us how much God can accomplish with those who are truly committed followers of Jesus Christ. Even Paul and Silas and Luke and Timothy were were four men we've been reading, traveling the almost completely pagan world. 
And they left behind at times inexperienced and brand new churches that were decisively in the minority. Yet, they turned the world upside down. Turned the world upside down. As John Wesley once said, give me 50 men who love nothing but God and fear nothing but sin and I will change the world. When we truly love God, when we truly treasure God, our commitment to God and our faithfulness with God will turn the world upside down because there's no greater treasure on earth and in the heavens than being loved by God, but being saved by God through Jesus Christ. God is most glorified when we are satisfied in him. Paul turned the world upside down by proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Romans 1, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now we see this in our text and we've seen it before, but as was his custom here, we read that when Paul came, he went first to the Jews in a synagogue. And when they rejected the gospel, then he would turn to the Gentiles. And his heart's desire was always for the salvation of his own people. But if they repented and believed in the gospel, they would fully embrace his outreach to the Gentiles. But if they rejected the gospel, as they often did, they had no basis for taking the gospel away from them because they didn't believe it either. By its very nature, brothers and sisters, the gospel is divisive. Jesus said, do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have come with a sword, he said. When the gospel is clearly proclaimed, it draws a long, deep line in the sand. People cannot be neutral to the gospel. So wherever Paul went, he stirred up controversy and divided people. Some believed and followed Jesus. Others rejected the message and and jealously stirred up opposition. In fact, they were so vehement in opposition, we saw in uh, our text, that they followed Paul the 46 miles to Berea just to stir up the city against him. They were especially jealous because Paul was drawing away from the synagogue God-fearing Gentiles who had been attending there. But before a person can believe in the gospel, they first must understand the content of the gospel. The context of the gospel centers on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And we read that Paul reasoned here, that's the word, with the Jews from the scriptures. The word reasoned here indicates dialogue, so this kind of a back and forth uh, teaching and challenging and uh, questioning. He reasoned and gave evidence, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. Now, explaining here means to open. So Luke uses the same word in uh, Luke 24 when he talked about God opening the eyes of the heart on the way to Emmaus. Assume the same word. Proving that it was necessary literally means to place alongside. So Paul was taking one scripture and putting it aside to another and just teaching them the gospel. And we do that when we, t- when we proclaim the gospel, because the word of God, the Bible, is the sole basis of the gospel. When you proclaim the gospel, take people to the Bible. Uh, 
sometimes they want you can people want you to use a booklet. Well, the booklet's okay, but make sure the booklet has the gospel in it. But um, when when you share the gospel, use the Bible. Use words of the Bible. Read those words out loud. Romans 10 says that so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of God. So they need to hear it. If that person who has never read the gospel, encourage them to read a gospel. And encourage them to say, after you've read it, after you've read it, ask yourselves, who is Jesus? Who is this Jesus? Because Jesus Christ is the center of the gospel. Amen? Jesus' question to his disciples was the key question for all of us. Who do you say that I am? Yes, us. That's the main issue that people have to deal with when we're talking about the gospel. If Jesus is who he claimed to be, then everything follows. But if he is not, nothing follows. To be saved, a person needs to understand who Jesus is and what he did. And why does the gospel upset people so much? Well, if the gospel is proclaimed rightly, it confronts people with their sin and calls them to surrender their lives to Jesus Christ. At the beginning of creation, created humanity in his image. His purpose of being created in God's image was that we would have an intimate and personal relationship with God. But not long after, sin entered the world, broke that relationship, and uh, Jesus was promised to come and die on a cross to mend that relationship with God. And that's what our call is in our presentation of the gospel to to know that God's been broken relationship with him and this is the way that it comes back together. Jesus came into the world to restore that relationship on a cross in our place for the penalty for our sins so we might be forgiven and redeemed and restored back to God. The confrontation that the gospel centers on is sin and rebellion against Jesus as king. The Jews thought the Messiah would be a conquering king who would deliver them from Rome, but they didn't like the notion of their king suffering and dying. That implied that they were sinners, and they were having a hard time with that because they saw Gentiles as being sinners. They liked the idea of a king who would make life comfortable for them, but they didn't like the notion that the king would confront them about their sin. But the gospel proclaims Jesus both as Savior and as Lord. These men who have turned the world upside down, saying that there is another king, Jesus. The Greek word translated another means another different kind. That is like a a king that is unlike the kings that we have in our world. No kings or presidents or prime ministers or dictators. It's a different kind of, of ruler. When you, when you read Paul's Thessalonian letters, you will see a strong and clear evidence of uh, the kingship of Jesus Christ and the promise of his return. And Jesus' kingdom is, is no, not political. It's not of this world. And so the kingship of Jesus is unlike any other ruler that we, we might know. K- King Jesus conquers with ambassadors, not by armies. His weapons are are truth and love, not bullets and bombs. 
King Jesus brings fallen humanity peace by upsetting their peace and turning the world upside down so they can have peace. He conquers through his cross where he died for the lost sinners. The truth is, if we, ha we do not faithfully proclaim the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, if we proclaim an easy gospel that dodges sin and continues to let the hearer to be happy and safe and comfortable about being their own Lord and King. Faith in Jesus Christ is not a matter of closing our eyes and leaping into the dark. Rather, it's based on the revelation of what God has shown us in his word about Jesus Christ. Neither is our faith in Christ an emotional decision based on good feelings after a church service or concert or whatever. Uh, if our faith is based on good feelings, it will not stand up in the stress of life. Not at all. What a blessing it would be if for us in the year 2020, we would ultimately become known as the church who turned the world upside down because we have another king, Jesus. In order for that to happen, we need to be truly committed to the word of God and truly committed to following Jesus and truly committed and faithful to the things we're looking at this morning. The Bereans were more noble, we read here, than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all the eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So the Bereans did not examine, use the scriptures uh, when they were examining, but they weren't skeptical. They were looking for truth. Um, what that means for us is they had open hearts and open attitudes when they were seeking the truth of the gospel. And what that means for us as, as a Bible-believing congregation are we need to be controlled by the commitment to declare what God has said instead of manipulating God's word to hear what we want to hear. And we can't do that. We, we can slide off and do that. We often do that, but we can't do that. We also need to be truly committed and truthfully, truthfully faithful to Paul's example of going out into the world and sharing the gospel. In order to do that, we have to look at how he was so committed and faithful to pleasing God and pleasing Jesus by proclaiming the gospel regardless of the circumstances. Paul was sensitive to Jesus' leading, um, and he would go wherever and whenever Jesus wanted him to go. He didn't let opposition and persecution stop him. The issue mo mostly that we face is that we, we struggle with sharing the gospel because we fear their reaction most of the time. We must not fear that someone may do or what they might say when we sh tell them about the Jesus Christ. We're, we're responsible to bring God's word to them. We're not responsible to the reaction. Keep in mind that most people who are fight us on this will call themselves Christians too. And you'll say, no, that's not true. It, it happens all the time. It happens all the time. It happened to Jesus and it's going to happen to us. But we can overcome because Jesus overcame. And we can rejoice in the fellowship of that suffering. But this would be great if this would um, 
That's right. <laughs> it would be great if this year we could begin to share Christ much more than we have in the past. I think a lot of us, most of us, don't do that regularly. We need to be a people who, not for the sake of turning the world upside down, but for the sake of Christ, we must do that. Winston Churchill once said, you'll never reach your destination if you stop and throw stones at every dog that barks at you. May we passionately proclaim the glory of God in Christ for the joy of all people until all the dogs go home. Amen. In 1 Peter, we read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory in honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Father, we thank you that, um, that you raised up the Apostle Paul to be a model, an example of um, what you want us to do. Now, we're probably saying to ourselves, we're not Paul. Well, we're not. But I would say most people are not Paul. And you, you call us, Lord, to commit ourselves to you, to be faithful to you, to give us our all, knowing, Lord, that there are so many people in our families, in our community, in the world that are they're headed towards hell. And Lord, we are the ones that you've sent and put in this place at this time to shine for you. And we know, Lord, when we do that, when we do share the gospel, we will face opposition within and without. But you did, Lord Jesus, and you overcame and you promised you would be with us. So we ask this here, Lord, help us to be a people who are gospel-centered in everything we say and everything we do. And that uh, when the next year comes, um, maybe this church will be twice the size, or at least the kingdom, a hundred, hundredfold. So we give you our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <coughs>